Turning to the flood situation in Pakistan, joining us now, we do have Mohammed Assad Gondal, the president of the BC Muslim Association, as we're dealing with this rush for aid to come in after over a thousand people killed, many displaced by these floods. Mohammed, uh, thanks for joining us and uh, and thanks for the effort. Uh, good morning, Bruce, and all the viewers of CNK. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to reach out to the viewers or the listeners of the CNK. Yes, definitely the situation in Pakistan is very alarming, and it is a time for everybody who has a kind heart to respond to that call. Mohammed, uh, before we go through uh, just uh, some of the aid that's uh, underway from various organizations, including your own, uh, let's talk about the scope and just the impact of these floods. How bad is the situation right now? Uh, right now, the report is about one-third of the country is under the water. Uh, most of the infrastructure, especially in a couple of provinces like uh, Balochistan, Sindh, and uh, also the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa is completely vanished. Uh, about 30 million people are on the roads. Uh, without any shelter, because now the different uh, agencies and the aides are being uh, there and they are helping them to get some arrangement for the tentage. Uh, the basic need right now is, that, as I said, that 30 million people have lost their houses and they are just on the street and the road or wherever they find a place. Uh, they are looking basic need, which is food. Uh, shelter, medicine, water. Uh, these are the basic needs, which is a prime. Uh, obviously, the death rate has increased. Like a week ago, about 1,000 people, more than 1,000 people have uh, given their life. But now, the last report is another 300 people have lost their life, too. And uh, thousands and thousands of life sucks also flood away in the, the flood situation. And now as the post-flood situation is again even more alarming, uh, sooner this water goes down, the disease starts, which is already started. So this is a time for those countries, especially the developed and uh, rich countries, to look at the situations and we should all get together and uh, help the country on the humanitarian basis. Mohammed, uh, before we even get into some of the details about how we can help, when you start talking about uh, the area that is flooded, how many people live there? And I ask uh, that question based on how crowded it may be, because that would contribute to uh, some of the possibility of disease and contamination of drinking water. Is this a crowded area or is it mostly countryside? Mostly this is, the flood is in the Sindh and the Balochistan province, which affect most of the area. It's not, yes, the big cities are always how they, when when these dams and these, the floods, uh, the rivers or the canals, when they make the cuts, they make the cuts in this way, that the big cities, they save it due to the bigger population. They always make the cuts. On the field areas, there the less population and the most the crops come under this. In this thing, like uh, the big cities and big populations are under less effect. But uh, as far as 
as I said, about 30 million people are affected. 30 million people affected and much more than just the 1,300 people that have been killed. This is going to last for a long time, very dangerous, and we could see fatalities, I would imagine, go up. So I know the UN Refugee Agency has rushed in with uh, some desperately needed aid. Uh, what are we doing here in Canada to help those overseas in Pakistan? A uh, lot of the organizations, uh, they have started already, and uh, they have started on ground operation. And uh, the PM, the government, federal government also announced $5 million, uh, which is obviously is not much for the need is in Pakistan. Uh, most of the organizations, which are the Canadian-based organizations, but they have ground operations in Pakistan. So the reports are uh, reaching that they have started the ground operations. But this can only be possible uh, uh, when the generosity of the Canadians, which always stand very high, they feel they're responsible for example, if anybody who can pay $100, $100 sometimes, it doesn't really mean for us, but it means a lot there. It can help a family of maybe four people, good for 15 days, they can have a food. So we as a BCM and the BC Muslim Association also campaign throughout the BC, and we have raised more than $200,000. Uh, which uh, we knocked out uh, yesterday, the first round of the campaign. And we are sending this uh, money for the ground operations maybe within a couple of days. I would definitely like to appeal to CNK, to all the viewers, if they can appeal and I can leave an email, the e-transfer, we set up a flood relief special account for Pakistan. As Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith on your Labor Day, you may, may have seen some of these terrible pictures out of Pakistan. Pictures are good. Situation is terrible. Where people are trying to survive with the massive floods that have hit the southern portions of the country. The United Nations Refugee Agency is uh, just now rushing in even more aid to the flood-stricken areas. The nation's prime minister has now traveled to the south where the rising waters of one lake pose even a new threat. That's the situation. Aid is required and some of that aid will come in from our own country. We've been talking with Mohammed Asad Gundal, the president of the BC Muslim Association. Mohammed, thanks for staying with us. Uh, how much aid, you mentioned uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars, how much would you like to see from our own country uh, in terms of donation, not government, but, you know, people reaching out in the community to donate? Uh, you know what? At this point, uh, this going to take a little while because the country, the damage, the loss is too great. And uh, obviously, right now, the situation is uh, to save the people's life and providing them the basic need, which is shelter, medicine, water, and food. So basically more focus are all the, all the relief agencies, they are doing this. Later, this is going to take for a, for, for a little bit of time. But we target, uh, we're going to run the campaign in the second round as well. So I was yesterday talking to some of my executives that we might go for at least six months 
uh, back and forth this campaign and uh, let's see how the response comes. So we were not limited to only because initially we run an idea within the organization. BCMA is the organization which have 21 branches throughout the BC. Uh, but the response was good. And when after that, we extend this campaign to the uh, all Canadians. And the response are very good as well. So we are reaching out the different communities and the people are helping. Well, that's good to hear because I imagine it is a matter of campaigns. And uh, the first one dealing with the life and death situation as the water is still a problem right now. Um, we're hearing about this lake and you've probably heard about it too. Uh, how dangerous? We're not out of the danger right now, are we? Uh, the situation there is still pretty bad. Yeah, actually, the rain starts in northern areas again, and they're predicting the monsoon is finished, but they are predicting there's going to be more rain in September as well. The lake you are talking, that's called Hab Lake, it's a, it's a huge lake. They are trying to save the population and uh, the dense area of the people there live, and they make a cut that the all those crops, maybe they have already gone, but the level of the water is increasing and they have to save the dam. And uh, let's see, because the situation is not really uh, in the favor because the rain starts again in the northern areas. So more water is coming. And when the more water is coming, these lakes and those, uh, everything, the rivers are adding. And when they got more water, so there's no choice. They have to either they flood out or maybe they sometime if they if there's a big population in way, they make their own cut to save the cities or the big population areas. Well, there are two things at play here, saving property and saving a city and also saving people. Uh, for those that uh, need to get out of the area, what are you hearing? Is there a mass evacuation that continues? Is it being done safely and uh, in the right way? Actually, you know, in the beginning, when 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 the floods was, it was like a tsunami. There, the people in the northern areas, uh, in the beginning, the the public sector and the government sector, they make enough. Uh, uh, arrangement or enough calls to alarm the people and they try to evacuate. Again, this is a third world country, poor country, having always not enough resources to take their people out. Uh, most of the time, people have to do things by their own and sometimes they got late because their attachment to their house and their life, uh, like a whole life earnings, that really matters to them. So that's why some of the people, they lost their life. But some of the government and the public sector uh, per- performed very well. Uh, where the announcement uh, the about the flood was reached on time, so they make enough effort to evacuate the people. But the- some of the areas, the people lost more life, they couldn't uh, evacuate. Right. This flooded area that we're talking about is in the southern part of the country. Is that an area that has a big um, uh, tie to British Columbia and the rest of Canada? Do many people here have relatives in that region or is it other regions that uh, are more likely to have those ties? 
when I would say one third of the country basically hit all the four provinces, they are they hit like only the central Punjab uh, is kind of safe. The rest of the three provinces are badly hit. If I see the demographic and the peoples who are from that country, like myself, uh, we mostly the peoples are from everywhere. I have seen, I've met few peoples who are from Sindh. Uh, their whole village is uh, underwater and they they're struggling. And it's not something you you might you might find everybody here except you who has not the family back home which are affected to at any extent. Maybe some are severely and some are minor. Right. And some of the people uh, that you're hearing from, how are they coping if they have relatives uh, in these areas that are affected? Um, are they uh, able to get messages uh, through or even hear of uh, any updates? Uh, in in the beginning, as I said, one of the provinces, which is called Blachistan, uh, it was even uh, fed out the, even from the satellite because the infrastructure was completely, they, nobody can reach out there. And there was no internet and the phone lines were, uh, like in the beginning, was not even able to crack people. But uh, right now, I think they have established uh, the internet and uh, communication, and people are communicating to them. It's not only the relief organization, which I personally find out. Uh, people in their own capacity, for example, if anyone is here, and if he think his village or maybe his town, or maybe at his capacity what he can do, people are doing their uh, helping them, sending them money so they can have some uh, better... Uh, things in their pocket so they can buy the essentials for them. Right, and Mohammed, uh, we had talked about this, but what's a quick and easy way for people listening right now to reach out and support and provide some of that aid or money for the aid in this area? Where can they go? Is there a website? Uh, yes, there is. I can simply give a, we have set up a flood relief separate account and I can give an email here, which is an e-transfer, and the money can go directly to the account. And any money it comes, uh, we would be able to uh, issue the tax deductible receipt as well. And the e-transfer link is, like, I can read it. I sent to one of your colleagues who called me. Oh, just uh, if there is a website, uh, maybe we'll take the website and deal with it that way. What, uh, what is a website, or what can they search? Just they can search for the the BC Muslim Association. And it's Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith later on in this half hour. We will be uh, going with or going down to Puget Sound to check in with a reporter following that deadly plane crash yesterday afternoon. A float plane went down off the west side of Whidbey Island. We know for sure that there is one fatality, but nine to ten people still unaccounted for. We'll be getting the latest on that. Uh, Right now, a chance to take a look at the brighter side of news uh, as the PNE draws to a close for 2022. Laura balances with me. Laura, it's great to have you here. Boy, what a year. The weather was fantastic this time. 
Yeah, we really had a fantastic uh, year, as you said. A little bit of rain yesterday, but we certainly can't complain. We had lots of sunshine over the course of the fair, and today's looking like a really nice fair day. You know, a little bit of high cloud, a little bit cooler temperatures, and a nice opportunity for people to come out and have one final look at, at what the 2022 fair had to offer. It's been a great run, and we're very grateful to everybody in British Columbia that it has continued to make the Peony Fair part of their family summer tradition. Laura, I know it's always uh, preparations that go on for a whole year in advance of the fair. Now you hit the final day, like a Labor Day. That must uh, feel awfully strange, almost like a little bit of a uh, a sad day for you, is it? Uh, I think it's, um, for me personally, it's it's a rather kind of a poignant day. It's a lot of opportunity. You know, there's a lot of people that come to the fair as well as vendors and exhibitors who I get to see once a year. And so I enjoy that part of it about reconnecting with people. We're like this extended family who catch up uh, once a year. So it's been Lovely for me personally to see everybody, especially after very limited uh, fair last year. This is a slightly larger fair uh, this year as we continue to rebuild. And as you say, the work is already um, underway. We're getting ready to give away our prize home next Monday. And then uh, we're back to rolling up our sleeves on the 2023 fair. And I want to get to the prize home. We will do that uh, in a few moments. But first, uh, there were some highlights, and I want to yeah, maybe go through some of these ones uh, with you. And actually, take some uh, calls and uh, get some of uh, some of our listeners sharing some of their favorite stories over the years or favorite memories from the PNE over the years, because it is a legacy event that adapts and changes, but certainly. It uh, it has a place in the history of uh, Vancouver and the rest of the province. It is the Pacific National Exhibition, after all, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It is, you know, the place where people came with their grandparents and today they come with their grandchildren. And so that's what's so special about it in my mind is the idea that it is the collective memory of our province. It represents... Uh, a place where people of all ages, ethnicities, religious backgrounds, new new Canadians, um, m- many generation families, we all come together um, to create those collective memories. And I think that that is important in our province, that we have that place where we have all come and experienced, um, you know, a collective memory. And that's what the p is really all about. Our, our The strength of our future is really built on the foundation of our past. And so this is our 112th year. We have um, grown and changed. And, you know, as you say, Bruce, we reflect back the province uh, that we are in and, uh, you know, work towards... Um, establishing those foundational programs that uh, everybody loves, things like the Superdogs or, you know, in more recent years, dueling pianos, um, those iconic programs, and then bringing in new uh, entertainment and new things to do. And so we had some really big successes with that this year, in particular our Canoe Cultures exhibit. Mm -hmm. Um, it was very, very popular, and uh, we were very proud to, to host them and to celebrate uh, Indigenous uh, culture and, and art and uh, crafts and actually canoe carving um, 
throughout the fair. So, you know, some some really neat um, new elements and then those foundational, historic, uh, beloved uh, traditions. Laura, I want to get to food and music in a moment because I mm-hmm. think that's a, a huge part of the fair. But mm-hmm. uh, sometimes we have to update and say goodbye to some things. That happened uh, with one of the rides this year. Was uh, We did say goodbye to that. I forget the name of it, the musical ride. Yeah, Music Express. Everybody right. knows it for you. Do you want to go faster? Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> you and I are of the age group that, uh, you know, that was part of our teenage years, right? Our Playland Indeed. experience. Yeah, yeah, sad. Uh, like, that's a ride that uh, I have great memories on. But the truth of it is, Bruce, that when a ride reaches its end of life, it needs to go. And that's what had happened with that particular yeah. ride. Um, and, you know, unfortunate, but it did make way for our new Skybender ride, uh, which we were very pleased to to open up this year and make that investment in. And we also, over the period of COVID, uh, made a significant investment into our our most popular ride, which is our wooden coaster, who, you know, that ride will celebrate its 65th uh, birthday next year. And that's going and nowhere, right? That's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's going to be refurbished uh, and kept uh, up. I mean, it has been this year, but it's always going to be with us, I hope. I think that there would be no reason. The difference between um, a lot of the steel rides is, is that when a, when a steel structure reaches its end of life, uh, it it simply has reached it. With a, the wooden coaster, because it is made of wood, it's actually classified as a living coaster, which means you can go in and easily replace wood, which is what we did. We replaced about 12,000 uh, feet of coaster um, over the last 18 months. During COVID, we we had been talking about this refurbishment for, for a few years uh, prior to COVID. We knew it was coming and uh, made the decision during COVID to go ahead and do that heavy work and you know, that took engineers from other parts of the world. It took the world's probably foremost engineering company, which is a group out of Montreal, um, to come in and work with our team and get that done. And it was an 18-month project to the tune of about a million dollars to get that done. So that that ride can have a strong future for many, many years. And it's just the nature of the construction material allows us to do that. Whatever happened to the demolition derby? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, Demolition Derby is uh, was very popular. The problem with it is, is that, you know, on a 17-day window, 15-day run, you need um, shows that are almost, uh, you know, people that do that for, for their living. So, for example, the Superdogs, you, you, you know, you have an established show with um, uh, things like the High Dive Show this year. That is a company that produces that show with demolition derby um it wasn't a group that put it on it was Mm -hmm. individuals who participated in demo derby so saturday afternoon at two you would have a strong turnout but it's hard to sustain that over you know two or three shows a day uh for the 15 days to to have the same caliber show throughout and that's really what we need to ensure as the overall event uh that that there is a standardized um, level of uh, performance. And so it just didn't, it wasn't able to to have that surety for our guests that if you came on a Tuesday morning, that you were going to see the same show as a Saturday afternoon. So the decision was made to transition that and those dollars into other shows. 
It's Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith on your Labor Day, the final day of the PNE. Love to hear some of your memories. 604-280-9898. Give us a shout. What do you remember from the past? What's your favorite thing at the PNE? Is it the PNE itself? Is it Playland? Love to hear from you. Laura Balance is with us. And Laura, you know, I've got to talk a little bit about the concerts this year. Every time the lineup comes out, I think, wow, how did you get those guys? Um, quite a lineup this year. Is it just me or is every year getting a little bit stronger with uh, some of the acts? Well, I, you know, uh, we thought it was a very, very strong year with a little bit of something for everybody, and that's always what we're trying to do. I, uh, you know, often jokingly say the P&E's uh, core demographic is everyone from 2 to 92, and, and it really is true. That's, you know, we're trying to have a great day for all all generations and all members of the family. So the concerts uh, this year, we saw everything from, you know, iconic rockers like uh, Steve Miller through to, you know, some of the stars of the 90s, uh, people like Nelly and Shaggy and uh, TLC uh, that were really, really popular. And then, of course, uh, last night we actually had the Beach Boys uh, celebrating their 60 years of the Sounds of Summer. So a real range and uh, we're, you know, we work very hard at that. We have a team that works all through the year. I think we were fortunate, um, you know, a lot of uh, musical acts have also been uh, down because of COVID. So there was a lot of folks out on tour this year. And so we, we worked very hard um, to put together a lineup that really made sense for our fairgoers. And I also think that, you know, Vancouver has a pretty good reputation um, for, for live music. And I think artists like to play here. And, uh, you know, to be honest, um, on a beautiful summer night, which we oh, had yeah. so many of them, uh, this year, uh, you know, out looking at the North Shore Mountains across the water at that venue, it is, uh, there's, I think, very few places on the, the coast of the, you know, the west coast of this continent that can compare to the to the atmosphere oh, of a going and seeing Chicago when you've got a beautiful uh, kind of sunset uh, over the North Shore Mountains and you're listening to an iconic band. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, nothing can beat that. Um, but you also mentioned there are some of the get away from the big bands and the big headliners, the smaller performances. And you mentioned the dueling pianos. I love that. That's something I just became aware of over uh, over the last couple of years. Yeah, very fun, very interactive with the crowd and something that uh, we started, gosh, it was probably a decade ago and it's become such a popular part of the fair um, that we, we actually moved them this year. So they moved from in what was the beer garden area in the Revel District up into more on the park side, up in the center of the site. And it was very popular and it allowed people, you know, sitting on the the picnic tables or the park benches in a larger area to to be able to enjoy that and guests of all ages to really be able to enjoy that music. I know the food, there was a little bit of a controversy about the mini donuts. Mini donuts were still there, but I guess one of the companies uh, that uh, was behind the mini donuts wasn't. Um, What other things are still a hit year after year when it comes to food? Yeah, yeah, and thank you for that. We we definitely had lots of mini donuts and and sold lots of mini donuts. Our, our vendors that uh, that were selected to be part of this year's fair had great years, and uh, we were able to welcome back the original family 
um, who had started Mini Donuts in Canada, actually. The granddaughter of the original uh, Mini Donut producer was here this year with her booth, and it went very, very well. You know, the Peony is known for food, and it's known for its diversity of the food, of our food products. We have about 75 independent vendors that um, are selected to participate in the fair. And, you know, for many, many years in other parts of uh, North America, fair food was really hot dogs, hamburgers, French fries, and, you know, candy floss. And the Peony really led the way because it represents um, our region, uh, which is very diverse. We began with a lot of um, food vendors that would come to Canada and bring their the food of their home country, their family recipes. And before they would open a restaurant, they would have a booth at the fair. And one of those families is the Curry and a Hurry family who started 40 years. It was actually 42 years, but they're celebrating their 40th because they weren't here for the two COVID years. Um, but so we celebrated them in their 40th year at the fair this year. And they went, you know, they came, they had grandma's recipes, um, they started with a booth, and now they've grown into a, a very successful company that does banquets and and um, different catering and mall uh, concessions and that. And we're proud of them starting here at the fair, and there's many examples of that. And that's what I always say about the peony is you get an opportunity to taste all sorts of different things that maybe you wouldn't think of going to a particular restaurant, but you get an opportunity to to try it here and then, uh, you know, maybe fall in love with with that style of food. Right. And, and of course, if you can deep fry it, we probably have it. So that's the other end of the spectrum. Oh, the smell of the deep fryers. That's, uh, that's part of that fair smell for me. Eric and Seashelt, uh, some of your favorite memories of the peony. Well, probably the roller coaster, but I'd like to know, I mean, why is it only open two and a half weeks? Like, you know, we should, why isn't the uh, P&E open uh, all summer long? Ah, it's a good question. Uh, thank you, Eric. Uh, I've wondered that myself. Uh, two and a half weeks, could it be longer, Laura? <laughs> well, I, I think I think those of us that work the, the full year to build it um, might... Uh, might not be as um as big of a fan we've we've often joked and we've got a couple of people here that joke and they say may day to labor day um but uh, i don't know it's it's we we employ about 9500 direct and indirect employees and a lot of those are university students and high school students and we have the playland um you know that starts really full time once the kids get out of school so that's probably about as close as as we're going to get to um okay. to to extending the summer fair uh, as well we have so many exhibitors that play the fair circuit so those food vendors we just talked about and exhibitors Thanks. who come from other fairs and it's Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith on your labor day Thinking about some of the past years where I went out to the Peony and remembering some of the food, some of the music. Oh, the good times that were had. And, uh, you know, it's uh, something you can keep in mind if you want to uh, recant some of your stories. Uh, we'll get, uh, we'll see if we have a chance to replay them. You can call the buzz line at 604 331 2899. Best stories, past or present, from the PNE. Best memories, share them with us on the Buzz Line 604 331 2899. We'll try to get to some of those later on in the show. 
A tragic story yesterday afternoon out of Puget Sound, just to the south of us, where a float plane went down with 10 people on board. Uh, It looks like there is one confirmed fatality, and the search continues for nine others. Well, Kevin Coe is a reporter at Cairo in Seattle and has been following this story for us. And following uh, this, uh, Kevin, what do we know right now? Is uh, the search effort going to continue? Bruce, good morning. The search has been picking up since the sun rose here in Whidbey Island. I can actually see two Coast Guard vessels out in the water right now from where I'm standing at Mutiny Bay. What I can tell you so far is that overnight, crews were not able to find anyone else, not even any additional debris. They're hoping that turns now that the sun is out. Now, Kevin, I remember seeing this um, this one tweet in the afternoon mm-hmm. yesterday, and it alerted me to this story. It was someone that uh, witnessed the plane hitting at high velocity, hitting the water, and uh, mm-hmm. obviously uh, a very traumatic thing to see. But given that, and given the fact that we uh, are into a day later, we could be looking at uh, quite possibly 10 fatalities. I hate to say it, but that's realistic, isn't it? Yes. Well, this is where it gets a little tricky, coming from officials at least. Uh, Let me take you back to last night. South Whidbey Fire, the local fire officials here, they told us they did not expect to find any survivors, and that was last night. However, I just spoke with the Coast Guard this morning. They tell me they are still on a rescue mission, which means they are searching for survivors. Obviously, only time will tell, but time is of the essence here. Now, the Coast Guard tells me it's not out of reality to find someone out in shores for 10 to 12 days, but this crash, it it wasn't in the middle of the ocean. It happened at least eye distance from the coast, and the way investigators are describing this crash, it is shocking, like you mentioned, Bruce. The firefighters, they tell us this float plane went straight into the water, didn't attempt a landing, and it just went straight down. So this obviously calls the question, what could have happened for it to cause this, for it to cause this plane to dive in that way? Well, the National Transportation Safety Board, they are sending seven federal investigators to figure it out. Kevin, we're talking about a small float plane, uh, one of the de Havilland's, a Canadian-made plane, uh, that mm-hmm. was based over, I guess, in San Juan Island uh, at Friday Harbor. Uh, are we hearing anything from the small airline at this point on, uh, on anything uh, that they're saying? We are not yet, but what I can tell you is that we over here at Cairo down in Seattle, we have reached out and are waiting to hear back. What we have learned, though, is that the plane is owned by Northwest Seaplanes. It's based in Renton, but it owns and operates a charter service from Friday Harbor, which is where the plane departed from. So you have these chartered flights coming from Friday Harbor all the way down to Renton, and in the middle of that route is when investigators say this plane dived down. If we're thinking about the area, this is the U.S. San Juan Islands, and I'm going to do my best to try to paint a picture of uh, some of the geography. But, Kevin, jump in if you have to, because I'm just a Canadian with uh, some travel <laughs> down to the States. But um, mm-hmm. basically, from what uh, from what I've seen on looking at the maps and what I know, if you were to draw a line heading west from Everett, you would hit the tip of Whidbey Island, uh, and if you continued with that, you would go all the way over to just about Victoria uh, on Vancouver Island. So Whidbey Island is that long island that is um, is connected to the mainland, but it is an island. And this is the southern portion 
is north of Seattle. That's where this went down. Um, the people that were traveling would be traveling to Renton, a suburb of Seattle, and going between Renton and uh, one of the largest uh, San Juan Islands being, uh, and, and one of the largest areas in the San Juans being Friday Harbor. So typically, what would 10 people be doing on this plane? Would they be tourists or uh, residents? Do we know? Well, number one, your geography is spot on. I do want to say that. Number two is that is kind of the big question here. I mean, if you're from this area, you see seaplanes, float planes all the time. They're very popular. Now, the question is, this chartered flight, who was actually in this flight? And who are these passengers? I asked the Coast Guard actually that today, and they tell me, quote, they can't exactly detail where they're from, but this is a quote, they're from all over. So we'll have to wait and see. All over. That is a uh, frightening thing to hear. Before we let you go, uh, Kevin, I uh, just want to know where we go from here. Uh, the weather, I would imagine, can't be too terribly different than the weather up in uh, the Vancouver area, meaning mm-hmm. that uh, overcast but uh, not raining hard or anything like that. Is it okay for a search to continue uh, way into the late hours tonight? Uh, what are you hearing? From what the Coast Guard tells me, they call the conditions today prime searching weather. From where I am sitting, it's hard to find a cloud in the sky right now. Very different from what I'm assuming Vancouver is with the overcast. But we will be getting updates throughout the day. So uh, we should have some more updates within the next hour or two. We'll let you know.